It's good to be with you this morning. I'm going to, in a moment, invite us to read Scripture together, and I'll invite you to stand if you're able to, and then we'll read the Scripture together, and we'll affirm some things at the end as a community. I'm grateful for the opportunity to dive into the Word together. And every time I preach, I'm reminded of the task of reading Scripture is not one that can be done in isolation. And while we may read individually at times, we may make space in our mornings or evenings to read Scripture by ourselves. We must never forget that Scripture was not given to any one of us, but was given to all of us. And therefore, as we read together, would we think not only about what we need, what we hope for, what we want, but also what those around us might feel need and desire. So I'm going to invite you to stand this morning as we read from Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 17. And it reads like this. He, meaning Jesus, came down and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of all people from Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked at his disciples and he said this, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in the day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consultation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think for all of us, there are certain stories that shaped the way we lived our lives. The way we grew up, the way we saw the world, and the things that we began to believe about where the world was going. For my best friend and I growing up, we became obsessed with movies about adventure. Whenever we would spend the night over at one another's homes, movies like Star Wars or Indiana Jones often filled the evening schedule. Because these movies glorified adventure, mystery, overcoming adversity, and captivated our attention. And these sort of stories wouldn't manifest just in our regular conversation, although they often did. They would also shape the way that we would see the world around us. Our neighborhoods became endless, never containing simply streets and driveways, but all of a sudden containing possibilities. When we walk out the door, we would look and marvel at the amount of space there was yet to be explored. And while those sort of stories manifested deeply and still do, if you walk in my office, you'll see lots of decorations that ended up in my office, not in our home, because Michaela asked very kindly that those ended up there. But there was a story that was very unique that shaped one of my best friend and I that captivated us more than anything else. 
And there was a show that maybe some of you have heard of, maybe some of you enjoyed, that came out when we were in middle school, and it was this show called Survivor Man that followed this guy named Les Stroud, who was a Canadian. I know you'd think God was actually moving on my heart long before I would later move to Canada. But it was this story about this man who would go out in the wilderness and document his time against all odds and prove that life could truly find a way. And for young, naive boys like us, we joined our local scout troop, determined we would prove ourselves in the wilderness. And so we would show up to our weekly scout meetings and learn basic survival skills, waiting in anticipation for that first camp out where we would get to show what we had learned. And I remember showing up to that first camp out with bright eyes and big dreams, and then very humbly in the middle of the night, my tent sprung a leak and I slept in a pool of water. And I was reminded that, yeah, maybe I have a lot to learn still. But I think for all of us, there's stories that shape our expectations. And whatever those stories may be for you, they will inevitably shape not only the way you see the world, but where you think the world is heading or could even go. Whether you grew up with siblings or you were an only child, a single parent or you had two, a large home or a small apartment, these things inevitably had an impact on the way you saw the world around you. Oftentimes you'll hear psychologists talk about when raising children the importance of what they call a perceived feasibility. In other words, the things that we hope for our children and their children, for it, in order for it to take root, it has to be visualized in some way. Why we talk so deeply here at Skyview about the importance of intergenerational ministry when it comes to passing on the faith to those that are younger. If they don't see it take root in the world around them, they will struggle to believe how it can take root in their lives. Conversely, the things that we do not do, the things we do not see, will often stunt us from ever imagining that life could ever be any different. And I think for many of us, we may have looked around at the world in which we live and thought, I guess that's just the way it is especially in a time with social upheaval, where it just feels like the world may be falling apart, have you felt tempted to say, I guess that's just the way it is? Even with our best intentions and efforts to make things better, we can succumb to the acceptance that maybe things will just never change. And we see things like injustice, inequality, racism, and many, many more social issues that dominate our visibility today. We cannot help but be overwhelmed by the amount of work there is to do. And the text today that we are given in Luke seeks to give us a new story, a new lens, and invites us to assess the world around us. And while we may be tempted to view it as long gone, Luke inspires us with the vision of what Jesus sees when he looks upon the world. The more that we read scripture, the more we begin to identify patterns, themes, and intentional decisions from authors that are meant to invite us into a deeper understanding beyond the simple words that are on the page. One of my favorite things in our week is that I get to hear a report from Pastor Doug each week about this John study that I think 11 of our people are going through right now. I did ask him. I think there's still space. This is a shameless plug for his John study. But I'm really encouraged each week because I hear a report about how our people are learning to read scripture in a deeper way, to look for these sort of themes, to ask deeper questions of what this decision might have meant, why this author would have written this in this way as opposed to another. 
And an intentional reading of Scripture and this passage would remind us of Matthew chapter 5. This Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes specifically, this portion in this multi-chapter discourse where Jesus delivers some of his best content to his disciples. And for this discourse, Jesus is noted to go up on a mountain, hence the name the Sermon on the Mount. And for those both experiencing and reading this portion of Scripture would have picked up on what Matthew was doing. See, for his audience, they were primarily a Jewish community. The people to whom he was writing were a Jewish community that was severely divided. Living in the wake of their destroyed temple, this phrase, up on the mountain, would have reminded them of their ancestor Moses, who too went up on the mountain, a place where he experienced God and brought new life to a community that needed it. And so what Matthew was doing there was reminding his readers that God was very, still very much present with them, even when their life may have felt like a wilderness. This sort of detail matters, particularly when we come back to this less famous portion of Scripture in Luke chapter 6, sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. A portion of Scripture that rightfully so feels very familiar because it is, yet there's an important difference. See, what Luke describes here is a Jesus that delivers this message, but delivers it instead from a mountain in a level place, where we could easily sweep over this detail, writing it off as insignificant. I would invite us this morning to consider the implications of how Luke perceives Jesus in this moment. See, while Matthew is working to soothe discord between a broken Jewish community, Luke is working to do something different. He's working to widen the reader's perception and understanding of the kingdom, a reality in which Christ was always pointing, that this kingdom was not just a place for some people, but a place for those that would come. In fact, all those that would come and see. And with this understanding, the following verses begin to take a new form. I feel like for many of us today, we need a level place. We need a place not only where we can hear each other, where we can hear Christ, but where we can actually begin to understand the grandeur of God's vision for this world. See, while even at the best of times, I can feel tempted to understand a level place based on what I want, a place where everyone maybe agrees with me, or in other words, a place where we ignore our differences, but I don't think either of those is the place from which Jesus speaks. I think what Jesus is doing here is reminding us that we need places that remind us that this phrase is untrue. It is not my kingdom come, but God's kingdom would come. That even at the best of times, we can succumb to this temptation that the kingdom would serve me first, that the kingdom would bring about what I want, and even if it does bring about what others, that my priorities would be at the front of the line. And so from this level place, Jesus speaks. From this level place where all could hear, where none could get in the way, where all would see one another, where all would begin to experience the grandeur of this vision. And this is all before Jesus does anything. Luke notes that people came to see him, to experience healing from both near and far. People from Judea, Jerusalem, inside the community, as some might understand, but also people from Tyre and Sidon, places that were explicitly outside of the perceived community. This passage falls right on the heels of the calling of the disciples 
Not even just a few verses earlier, Jesus would call these 12 people that he would invite to follow them. And while Jesus goes on to teach many, many things in Luke, Luke's mention of this somewhat global encounter is mentioned first and therefore takes first importance of what Jesus would go on to do and say. I think if we were asked to describe Jesus, we might come up with a number of things. Perhaps our mind would go to the healing miracles, moments in which we were reminded of Christ's power over the brokenness of our world. Maybe your mind goes to the cross, a reminder of Christ's suffering in our world. Maybe your mind goes to his humble origins, time in which Jesus was born not in a palace, but through a poor family in a manger. And while any of these descriptions would be correct, I think that Luke is pulling us into something deeper. He's asking us not to forget about those other things that are important to Jesus' life, but asking us to prioritize something in our characterization of who Jesus is and where he is calling us to. Lines that, were, that decided who was in and who was out seemed to be of little importance to Jesus here. And I think there's a particular temptation for us in the church, even in our best of efforts to reach out to others, to desire to be first and foremost explicit about who is in and who is out. And I'll tell you, the longer that I follow Jesus, the more that I begin to discover, not that those things aren't important, but those things are not what defines who Jesus is and what ministry he does. And while this form of gatekeeping can give people a sense of security, I believe it inevitably fails to give us the eyes to see the grandeur of what God is doing around us. And I fear that at times in my life, in my efforts to follow Jesus, I have been more concerned with who's in and who is out rather than believing that God wants all people to come to him. That the grace that was given to me was given freely and offered freely to all those who might hear All those who might need, which in fact includes everyone. I think this story presents more than a simple affirmation that Jesus was popular, but I think there's an explicit reminder for those of us that would choose to follow Jesus. That we need to pray for an imagination. An imagination that we would begin to believe that the work that God is doing in this world is not just for some, but seeks to transform all of us. An imagination can be unbounded. Imagination can be scary. Imagination can be uncertain because it leads us to places where we are not in control. But we do so in faith, knowing that the one who has called us, the one who sought to transform us, is already ahead of us, already working in the world, already doing the work that so desperately needs to be done in this world. I think this text also invites us to consider this. Last week, Pastor Stu spoke about this false dualism with which we can often view the world. A really important piece that I think we need to remember when reading Scripture, sometimes we use categories like physical or spiritual. These categories, maybe they can be helpful for us to understand things that are bigger than ourselves, but they also come with a detriment. When we too readily categorize things in these two kind of polarizing realities, what we begin to do is we begin to create this idea that what God is working to do, the kingdom that God is trying to bring really has nothing to do with this world. 
that perhaps the God that we serve really has no intention for this world, but is really only trying to pull us away from it. And I cannot say to you explicitly enough how important it is that we remember that the work that, John, that Jesus does, the way that Luke picks up on it, is grounded in the realities of this world. It cannot ignore it. It cannot focus on someplace else, but refuses to say Jesus doesn't care. And I think that matters for us when we think about our faith. To hold to these categories creates this idea that God really doesn't care or have any power over this world. And while there are traditions that hold strongly to this dualism, this idea known as Gnosticism, that was in fact deemed a heresy almost 2,000 years ago, keeps us from truly seeing the depth of God's transformative power in the world. And I think, church, to be honest with you this morning, that our efforts to evangelize, to spread the news of God's goodness to the world, has too often focused only on this reality we call the spiritual, has focused too much on this reality we call the soul, sweeping over the physical challenges that our neighbors are facing today. I think for Luke and for us as readers, we cannot ignore this reality of poverty. He says, blessed are those who are poor. There are those who read this text and have tried to interpret it to understand that he's talking about something else. But to read that scripture that way is to be unfaithful to the text. The Luke wants to remind us that there are those that are poor around us. Yes, poor, without money, without resource. There are those that are hungry, that don't know where their next meal will come from. There are those that are weeping, who have lost. And Luke invites us to lean into these spaces. It is to these people that Jesus turns his blessing. And before any sort of response can be made, as the people of God, particularly those of us who do not wonder where our next meal might come from, or if our rent check will clear or if we can afford those winter clothes, we need to stay warm. Before we can do anything, we have to pray that we would have eyes to see the world as God sees it. We need to pray for eyes to see the world, not as one that will be abandoned, but one that will be redeemed, as it has always been intended. What does it mean for this good news to truly be good? I would suggest that if our faith does not lead us to places where we participate in practices that feed, that provide, that comfort those in the lowest places of our society, then it has yet to take root in our lives in the way that God intended. And we must learn to celebrate the areas of our world where provision is being made. And if the news we call the gospel does not have something to say to poverty, to hunger, to pain, then I think it has failed to be the good news that God offers this world. One of the things I love about our Skyview community is we do this weekly food pantry, a ministry that has been going strong for about a year now and has many volunteers. One of my favorite things, my wife and I get to be on a team with some people here in our church, and each about every four weeks we package groceries and we give them out to neighbors, about 10 families every week who are in need. I think it's not unusual for churches to have ministries like this. You walk into many churches and they'll often talk about the things that they do for others. And I think that's really good and I celebrate that. But one of the things I appreciate about us here at Skyview is that we're very explicit about this not just being a ministry that we might feel better about ourselves. 
a ministry that maybe we can help some people along the way, but actually as a work that is complementary and important and integrated into the faith that we are experiencing, the way that God is transforming us, that it functions as a necessary piece of our faith. Not auxiliary, not secondary, but as a first and foremost important piece of who we are called to be and the work we are called to do. I think after that affirmation has been made, perhaps we are ready, ready to begin the work. Perhaps we would be so bold to step into this, this work called the kingdom that God invites us to. We must face the things that keep us from living as God intended. Because if we're honest with ourselves, our default is not often to live in this way to create a world in which the poor would be provided for, the hungry would be fed, and that those who do not have would actually be considered blessed. I think there's a number of things that keep us from living this life of sacrifice. Luke seems to point out, borrowing from the text in Deuteronomy, this sort of blessing and woes, Luke suggests here a structure that stands in contrast to the standards of our world because he refuses to give blessing to the rich. He refuses to acknowledge that those that have would actually be the ones in power, the ones who are able to anticipate their meals, plan for their future, or live without financial strain. But it is the poor who are truly blessed. And I think this is particularly challenging for us in our modern-day Western world. For this framework still lives in such contrast to our expectations. And while some of us may regularly tithe, donate to charities, and help our neighbors on occasion, while those are all very good things, I think there's this built-in assumption that too often we can succumb to that what it means to be blessed is really dependent on the more that we accumulate. No matter how much we may give away, there can be this expectation that when we receive, anytime you ask somebody around the Christmas season if a bonus comes in or if somebody forgets to charge you for something or you get a little extra in your meal, we might consider ourselves blessed. But I think Luke picks up on what Jesus is doing, refuses to play into these assumptions that perhaps have been built into society for a very long time. Jesus refuses to play this game with people in which people might come to assume that the things that they gather equal power and equal blessing. Amidst some confusion in this passage, a person who we mention often, who Pastor Brittany, Pastor Stu, and I are big fans of, Eugene Peterson, offers us a really helpful piece of clarity in his message translation that I'd like to read for us this morning. He says in verse 24, But it's trouble ahead. If you think you have it made, what you have is all you'll ever get. And it's trouble ahead if you're satisfied with yourself, for yourself will not satisfy you for long. And it's trouble ahead if you think life's all fun and games, for there's suffering to be met, and you're going to meet it. What is found here is an understanding not of a critique of wealth itself but instead a much more powerful lament from Jesus to those who have it, to those who are burdened with this sort of provision. That this sort of provision actually begins to act as blinders, that we struggle to see this world as God sees it. And to those that are burdened with this sort of provision, we must recognize and avoid this trouble 
ahead that comes with it. For Jesus is not only seeking to create a place where the poor would be provided for, he's seeking to provide liberation for those that are bound to their provision, to those whose perception and story is so shaped by an expectation of blessing that is about accumulation. We are in desperate need of liberation from these ideas. We are in desperate need of new eyes to see the world as God sees it. We are in desperate need of a better story that looks at the world and actually believes what Jesus invites his disciples to pray for, that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We need a better story. What Jesus provides in these verses for us today is a vision, a story, a picture of what the kingdom should look like. A place where those who need, those who are poor, those who are hungry, those who are weeping, could come with an expectation of provision. But also a place where those who have too much could come and learn to let go of that which binds them. I would pray that Skyview could be a place where the poor, the hungry, the needy could come and expect provision because God has empowered those who have too much to be providers. As we begin to look forward to the life of Skyview in this coming year, we know this new season provides some excitement for some, but also some anxiety for others. But as we reimagine what ministry looks like, as we make plans for budgets and ministry plans and weekly gatherings and all those sorts of things, as we imagine new initiatives and possibilities that could exist in our future, I would ask us, what story is shaping our vision? What story shapes our hopes for the future? I think for all of us, it can be bound to an expectation of what once was. What we once thought was good, what we once thought perhaps was faithful, what we once thought perhaps was where God wanted us. And while surely the past carried with it some faithfulness, not what I'm suggesting this morning, what I am suggesting is that our vision can be clouded, especially in a season that has challenged our desires to be hospitable to one another in a way I have not ever experienced. In a season that has tempted me to close into myself, to accumulate as much as I can, hold on to as much as I get, and dream first and foremost for myself. I think our expectations coming out of this season can be more shaped by what makes us comfortable, what keeps us fed, what keeps us cared for. I think the story that Jesus invites us to today invites us to ask how might we be a community with all of our ministry initiatives, budget plans, dreams, and vision statements for the future, how could those first and foremost be shaped by a care for those who are the poorest among us? For those who are the most needy among us? For those who do not know where their next meal might come from? One more note for us this morning. We spoke about a temptation earlier about to say that's just the way it is. But I think Luke pushes us to look at the world with different eyes, to imagine a community that would embrace both the rich and the poor, a community in which the hungry are made full and the full are unbridled from their fullness. 
entirely devoted to serving those who need it most. An author who, quite, who I quite like named Adam Gustine describes this kingdom as a place where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. This vision of what the kingdom could be, a place that the church is to reflect, should be a place where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Could we imagine a community here at Skyview? That instead of ignoring the issues we see in our society, looked directly into the eyes of the needs of our neighbors and responded with what was needed. And this sort of work is scary. This sort of work takes me beyond myself and leads me to wonder what would Christ do in this moment? The longer that I follow Jesus, the more that I have begun to discover it is in those moments where we feel most unsure when we look needs straight in the eyes and wonder what Christ would do. Christ responds with the faithful community of believers. Christ responds with the faithful community of those that would proclaim his death and resurrection, looks directly at the need in the eye and says, here I am for the world. That oftentimes we take this posture where we sit back and we wait for Christ to work in the world, yet Christ says, you are the vehicle through which I will work in the world. And I would pray for us in this coming season, more importantly than anything, as I myself even imagine for our youth and our young adults ministries, what does it look like for these ministries not to prioritize my needs, my wants, my desires, my hopes, but would put us first and foremost up close to those who are in need. Because it is when we are closest to those who are in need that we become closest to Christ. The closer that we are to those in our world that are suffering, the closer we are to those in our world that are most vulnerable, the closer we are to those in our world who need good news the most, the closer we will be to Jesus. If you've been tracking along with us here at Skyview, we follow these seasons in the Christian calendar, and we're in this season called Epiphany that invites us to ask this question, what sort of Jesus is this? We've talked about this before, that it's often visualized by light in contrast to darkness and leads us to ask deep questions like, when Jesus shows up, what can we expect? One more interesting note before we close that I ran across in my studies I noted earlier that the presence of people in this moment when Jesus began to heal and provide, it's noted that people not just from Judea and Jerusalem are present, but people from Tyre and Sidon. One interesting note about Tyre, one of the cities present at Christ's discourse has a troubled story, a shattered history, that some 300 years before the ministry of Jesus, Alexander the Great, one of the greatest global conquerors in recorded history, would set his sights on this island. And through his conquest and the destruction of the city, he would actually build a land bridge from the rubble to connect the island to what is now a connected piece of land. Built into this city's story was a narrative that believed that the only way forward, the only road to the future, was to be paved with destruction of those who came before us. To stand on the backs of those who were not strong enough to stand on their own. 
What's demonstrated in this story of conquest, the story of Alexander, one who literally fought life through conquest, found life through conquest, I believe is an all too familiar story for us in our modern day. A belief that the only way forward for us as faith communities is to conquer that which we feel stands in our way. As the band comes forward, I would suggest to us as we close that the people of Tyre came to this place. They came to be healed and provided for by Jesus. Their presence in front of this Jewish rabbi stands as a testament that they could not get what they needed in a place like Tyre. They could not be provided for in a place, even a place of extravagance and wealth, a place that was built on the back of conquest and destruction and pain. Their presence with this Jewish rabbi, asking for something that they could not get in their home, showcases Luke's understanding of the irony of this reality that Jesus sets up. For there are those in history that have sought influence and control through conquest. Cities are conquered and strengthened using the rubble from those that they sweep out of their way. And the temptation for us as faith communities as we move forward and ask what does it look like for the kingdom to come in this world, we cannot forget these sorts of stories. That the story that Jesus offers us is not a story of conquest. It is not a story of conquering. It is not a story of life through death of others that would stand in our way, but is a story of sacrifice. A story of presence with those who most need it. For to be a faith community is to both look for the kingdom and to stand witness to what it stands for. And I would wonder, headed into this new season, if we could learn to let go of these old stories. While certainty can be comforting, God invites us to have a boldness of imagination. To imagine a new story, one that is bigger than any one of us, yet calls all of us. A story that envisions a better world. One that looks at it how God has always looked at it. A world that might know the grace that God offers freely to all those who would come. Let's stand and close and worship together this morning.